an article in Forbes.com titled Five Reasons Why Leadership is in Crisis argues a startling 86% of respondents in a global survey agrees that we have a leadership crisis in the world today. Uh, whether in the arena of politics or economics or in the public school systems or even in our churches, crisis in leadership seems to be getting worse and not better given all the tense contentions and divisions in our society and culture in the recent years. The article points out five reasons why leadership is in crisis, and I thought they were worth mentioning because it is so contrary uh, to what the Bible prescribes, what Christian leadership should be. Leadership is in crisis because, number one, according to this article, leaders focus on outcomes instead of causes. Point number two, leaders believe organizations to be or should be well-oiled machines, often neglecting or steamrolling the people that make the machine running possible. Point number three in this article, leaders fail to see or lead beyond their egos. Point number four, leaders lack self-awareness. Point number five, leaders venerate meaningless activity. What the article means by that is people are working, but leaders are not leading them effectively or efficiently. With such goal-oriented or self-oriented ends justify the means type of leadership, no wonder what we are experiencing is indeed a crisis in leadership. In contrast, 1 Peter 5 verses 2 to 3 instructs elders to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Shepherds of God's church ought to be, of course, different from the leaders of the world. Well, how should they be different? That's the subject of today's message as we answer the question, who leads, who leads the church? We're finishing up our topical sermon series titled Rediscover Church based on the book of the same title by Colin Hansen and Jonathan Lehman. And we've been studying through the topics of the book chapter by chapter as we have considered what and who the Bible says the church is. Although the normal means of teaching here at New Covenant Baptist is through expositional preaching where we study God's Word book by book and verse by verse, through preaching which the main point of the passage is the main point of the sermon being preached, where the exposition of God's Word drives the message rather than whatever the preacher feels like preaching that Sunday or whatever the felt needs of the people are in the pews. Nevertheless, through this three-part nine-message topical series, the elders thought that it would be helpful for our young church to teach again about what the church is and who the church is made of. With so many of our members in our congregation who may be new to the biblical ideas of what a healthy church is, and with many members who perhaps never even thought about any of this. Uh, we wanted to teach you the importance of it and why it matters, why the church is essential, and why for Christians the church is not a simple tack on after everything else in your life, after your careers or your career goals, your family, your children, your boyfriend or girlfriend, or your future spouses. That church is indeed essential. Because through the pandemic, so many Christians and churches were caught off guard, weren't they? As challenges piled up on top of each other, Christians were tested in their faith. Churches were tested in their ministry philosophies. Do you remember at one point churches were doing virtual communions? Grab a piece of bread, grab some juice, and everyone is welcome to participate. Not realizing that Scripture has clear instructions on how God's people ought to gather and worship Him 
And so many have erred in so many ways. But again, these were just the symptoms of the deeper issues at hand. A lack of a clear understanding of who and what the Bible says the church is. And we all know its consequences. Churches pivoted for practical solutions. Virtual options were readily available. Many self-professing Christians stopped attending church by the droves. Because meaningful church membership was never exercised in churches, churchgoers who were never really committed, never really involved, easily slipped through the cracks or were forgotten. And as months and years of the pandemic progressed on, not prioritizing the Sunday gathering became way too easily convenient for so many. And as situations in our society regarding politics and race and pandemic-related issues and issues regarding conscience began to intensify, many churchgoers called it quits altogether. Twisted up in politics and race conversation, hashtag exvangelical or deconstruction of faith became the hot topics of churches. I can say more, but looking back, the church has gone through a lot in the past few years, haven't we? Hence for us, to rediscover church, for some of us to relearn, and for some of us to discover for the first time perhaps what the church is, that God intended and instructed for us to be, is of absolute necessity. Because faithful gospel preaching local churches is still God's instrument through which He saves the lost and sanctifies His saints. Jesus came and died and rose again and ascended and will return again for his church. Amen? As the authors of this book argue, a Christian without a church is a Christian in trouble. A Christian without a church is a Christian in trouble. And I questioned even further a few weeks ago, can a person truly be a Christian without a church? Can a person truly be a Christian without a church? How can they be if they never gather with fellow saints according to Hebrews 10, 24 and 25? Who would affirm their profession of faith? Who would examine their life and doctrine? Who would hold them accountable for their sins? Who would teach and disciple them in God's word? As Pastor Mark Dever says, Christianity is personal, but it's never private. Christianity is personal, but is never private. The fact of the matter is, none of the challenges of these past few years or whatever worst circumstances that may come our way is a surprise to our God. We have no clue, of course, but God knows all things. Amen? He is sovereign over all things. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His word will endure. The word of God is sufficient for all that we need. Simply, we believe that the Bible teaches that the church is composed of born-again believers. Those who profess to be Christians know and understand the glorious gospel. We regularly gather together to worship our God corporately. We love to sing, pray, read, preach, and see God's word because we know we need it daily and weekly. We sacrificially love by making disciples of all nations. We persevere in faith through the highs and lows of life, through sufferings and sorrows because we know that Jesus is our Savior, Lord, and King. And that His church is not a building not a place. The church is a people. We are His people. He is our Father. We are His children. He is the head. We are the body. He is the groom. We are His bride, eagerly awaiting for His return with certain hope, with guaranteed hope for eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. Amen? So the question of who leads is an important one. 
Because God has made it clear in Scripture that churches are led by elders, supported by deacons, and lived out through you, the members. This is Jesus' discipleship program as described by the authors Hansen and Lehman that the Bible teaches. Let me tell you that the wrong understanding of what biblical leadership is and does has been a significant source of heresy in church history. Those churches who hold that one man, namely the Pope, or a group of men hold equal authority as the Bible does, they are in grave error. Furthermore, the misuse and misunderstanding of the elders' authority has been the source of shameful controversy in church history. And also recently in the wake of the Me Too movement, which helped spotlight spiritual abuse that's been happening in churches for years. Of course, the topic is complex, and the aim of this talk is not to get into much of that, but as we rediscover church to clearly present to you what the Bible teaches, who leads the church and how they lead the church. So this afternoon, I want to answer three questions to answer that broad question, who leads, which will serve as points for this message. Here's the outline so you can follow. Three simple questions. What is a pastor? Point number two, what does the pastor do? Point number three, how do pastors lead? Brothers and sisters, no matter what experiences you may have had with church leadership in the past, I pray that you would be built up and encouraged to learn Scripture's prescription on authority that is good and beneficial for you and for the church to pray for, to cultivate, and to submit to joyfully. I pray this message will point us ultimately to our good and gracious Chief Shepherd, Jesus Christ, who is the primary example of the servant leader we ought to follow. Amen? If you are here and you are not a Christian or you are not sure that you are, welcome. We're so glad that you are here. We've been praying for you, as Brett said. We pray that the Lord would bring you here today to worship the one true and gracious God with us. Perhaps you come here this afternoon discouraged by the bad leadership that's all around our society. Well, we pray that through this message you will come to know the Good Shepherd, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up to a cruel death on a cross in order that he may defeat Satan, sin, and death forever so that we would have new and eternal life in him. In Jesus, there is forgiveness of sins available to you. There is abounding grace and joy and hope in him alone if you would repent and believe and trust. So friend, if you are here and you are not sure that you are a Christian, Hear his invitation today. Look to him today. He is offering his invitation to you. So without further ado, let's dive right into the first point. Number one, what is a pastor? What is a pastor? I wonder if you ever thought about that question carefully. What is a pastor? Even as a pastor myself, when asked by non-Christians, what do you do for a living? And I tell them with a little bit of hesitation, I'm a pastor. And for whatever reason, the look on their face shows that there's a certain idea that comes to mind regarding pastors. Some sort of holy man, some sort of older man, or some sort of boring, judging type of man, perhaps. What thoughts come to your mind when you think of what is a pastor? Of course, the thought that comes to your mind about pastors depends on what kind of experiences you've had with your pastors in the past. Some of us were blessed to have godly men who shepherded us in some of the most formative times in our lives. Or perhaps some of us have been hurt or abused by overly domineering pastors who did not represent Jesus as they should have. For me, my uncle growing up, my uncle who was a pastor showed me how to love Jesus wholeheartedly. He loved being a pastor. To love the church sacrificially, he showed me that. To pray fervently, he showed me that. During college, Steve Pettit showed me how pastors care deeply 
introduced me to regular discipleship. He met with me every other week and just heard from me, heard my concerns, prayed with me, taught me scripture, and became one of my closest confidants and counselors in ministry. More recently, Pastor Mark Dever taught me what the Bible says the church is and what a pastor is and modeled for me how to love the church beyond my local church. What is your experience of a pastor? What is a pastor to you? Again, no matter what experiences you may have regarding pastors, Scripture clearly portrays the pastor as men with a specific call, character, and work. So, what does it mean pastors are called? The first sub-point, the New Testament teaches that pastors are given as gifts to the church. Pastors are given as gifts to the church. Ephesians 4, 7 and verses 11 through 13 says this, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We're going to get to what pastors do in point number two. But I want to first establish the fact that pastors are called, or more specifically, given to churches by God as gifts for a purpose, for a specific task. Well, what is the calling of pastors? What is their purpose? Second subpoint. The New Testament shows that pastors are to lead under Christ's authority. Pastors are to lead under Christ's authority. Actually, did you guys know that the Bible never actually, uh, uses the word pastor? The word pastors, plural, is used only one time in the New Testament, in Ephesians 4.11, supporting the point that the biblical pattern for leadership is always plurality, multiple elders, multiple pastors, which we'll talk more about in point number three. But the more common word used in the New Testament, elders, refers to those who have leadership positions in the church, particularly in regards to those who are dedicated to teaching of God's word. We're going to, again, talk more about that in point two also. But first, note that the Bible uses the words elders, shepherds, overseers, and bishops interchangeably. They're all the same thing. Pastors, elders, shepherds, overseers, bishops, same thing. And you can see how these words convey the idea of the role of leading or shepherding or overseeing God's people, ultimately under the authority of the chief shepherd, Jesus. Which is why 1 Peter 5, 4 follows the verses that I just read. When shepherds lead by example, when they do it right, it says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Furthermore, verses like John 21, 15, and 16, where Jesus commands Peter after his resurrection, at Peter's restoration, feed my lambs, shepherd my sheep. And in Matthew 16, verses 18 through 19, when Jesus says, and I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. And in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 19, when Jesus says, All authority has been given on to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. You see, in regards to leading and shepherding from our scripture reading passage that our sister Lori Ann read, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3 says to the elders, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. You see, there is a certain expectation for elders that they lead willingly and eagerly and as examples. 
It would be odd, wouldn't it, to find a shepherd who is not leading, who is not visible and available, who is not willing to lead, who is not leading by example. That would be really odd, wouldn't it? Let me say that again. To find a shepherd who is not leading, who is not visible and available, who is not willing to lead, who is not leading by example. That would be odd. Because such a shepherd sounds and acts like more of a sheep and probably should not be a shepherd. Which leads us to our third subpoint: a pastor is qualified. A pastor is qualified. The point is this. Not everyone who wants to be a pastor can be a pastor. There's people that we know who have said, God wants me to be a pastor. God wants me to go into ministry. Okay, well, you better believe if God gave someone such a desire, a church better affirm that desire. A pastor without a church's affirmation is not a pastor. You can't just call yourself a pastor if a church doesn't call you a pastor. A pastor is not a profession or who you become just because you have a theology degree or because you went to seminary. You can go to seminary, but doesn't mean you are a pastor or even should be a pastor. 1 Timothy 3 verses 1 through 7 and Titus 1, 5 through 9 lays out for us the biblical qualifications of an overseer, elder, pastor. Let me just read one passage for, for us. 1 Timothy 3. Verses 1 through 7 says this, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of the overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. You see in this passage, six basic qualities of an elder first is the desire. You can't be a pastor or you can't be an elder if that person doesn't have a desire to become one. Second, is godly character, someone who is above reproach. His character is unquestionable. You look at him, wow, godly brother. right? Third, the ability to teach. We're going to talk more about this in the next point. Fourth, is the ability to manage his own household. In other words, elder, a pastor can't be a hypocrite. Fifth, is someone who is a mature believer. And sixth, Perhaps nowadays somewhat controversial is that pastors should be men only according to the scriptures. Now this can be a whole sermon in itself and you can reference a handful of sermons on our website on Titus 1 or 1 Peter 5. But for now, I want you to understand that in order to be a pastor, these biblical qualifications require a man to have both the internal calling, an internal desire from God, as well as the external calling, a church's affirmation of the man's gifts as well as his character for a man to be qualified as a pastor. So in summary, what is a pastor? A pastor is given as gifts to a church for a purpose. And a pastor's purpose is to lead and shepherd Christ's sheep as an under-shepherd of the chief shepherd. A pastor himself has no authority in himself other than what Christ allows bounded by the scriptures. And a pastor is qualified. Point number one. Point number two, what do pastors do? Three subpoints here again. I'm tricking you guys. I said three points, but I have subpoints here. Sorry. Three subpoints here again. 
One, to teach. Two, to model. Three, to pray. First, to teach. Of the two offices prescribed in the Bible, deacons and elders, what sets apart the elders is the special ability to teach God's Word. Now, this doesn't mean everyone else in the church shouldn't teach. No, every Christian, listen, brothers and sisters, every Christian, brother or sister, should teach God's Word. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the Word of Christ dwell richly in you, teaching and admonishing one another. And again, Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, speaking to every single Christian, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And sisters, in particular, Titus 2, 3, here's a word. Older women, they are to teach what is good, and so train the young women. You see, every disciple of Jesus, men and women, are called to teach. However, of course, elders are called to the special task of teaching God's Word for the purpose of equipping the church for the work of the ministry. So let me read again Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, which says, And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up the body of Christ. Yes, all Christians should participate in teaching one another in God's work, in the mission of making disciples as the church, but... Pastors and elders and overseers teaches and equips the church so that church members will be able to fulfill the ministry that God has called us all together to accomplish. A pastor elder should be someone exceptionally gifted in the task of teaching. This is one of the reasons why when younger brothers aspires to pastor, one of the first questions I ask is, do you love teaching and preaching God's word or not? Preaching and teaching is the main ministry of a pastor. I'll tell you, most of my work as a pastor involves me in the office reading and rereading the Word, praying over the Word, the passage of that week, so that my heart can understand the Word rightly, researching the passage I'm preaching on for that Sunday through commentaries, listening to sermons, then sitting down to write the sermon. In total, close to 20 hours each week pouring over the Scriptures, first in order to feed my own soul, and then so that I can bring you a healthy, well-balanced nutritious, word-centered, gospel-centered, spirit-empowered meal every Sunday. Amen? I'll tell you, weekly preaching and teaching is the most hardest, weighty, rewarding part of pastoring. And I am so very thankful for the opportunity that I have from God and because of you to preach God's Word week in and week out. Thank you so much for the opportunity to bring God's Word to you every single Sunday. Thank you for coming back. <laughs> Thank you so much for this opportunity. Pray for me that I would grow in it Pray that you would grow from it. Pray that God would be glorified by it. Amen? I'm so excited to dig into Galatians in two weeks. I loved Pastor Jeremy McLean's exhortation last Sunday, didn't you? We know the Word, but isn't it amazing when God speaks through a Word to make the Word come alive in our hearts and our minds and our souls in a way that speaks to our current circumstances to give us life and joy and hope? I love that. I love expository preaching. I love preaching it. I love listening to it. By the way, pastors love it when you listen to the sermon and give specific feedback about what you heard and were encouraged by. So instead of saying, thank you for preaching, actually have something, just one thing to say to give feedback. I was really encouraged by that. That shows us you are listening. 
Of course, this doesn't mean pastors will preach perfect sermons every Sunday. You all know when I have been struggle city up here, but you have prepared your heart by reading over the passage being preached. You have prayed for me or whoever is preaching to preach God's word faithfully. And as you are listening, you are praying for God to speak through the preacher and for you yourself to have ears to hear from God, that the Spirit of God will enliven your ears and your heart and your mind for a fresh word from Him through the preached word. And you are praying secretly or maybe not so secretly for the person sitting next to you or across the room, especially if you know that they really need to hear that word. In this sense, just as you need the preacher, the preacher needs you. There is no consumerism here at this church or any gospel Bible-believing churches. The corporate gathering is no mere spectator sport. We are here for one another to glorify God in our corporate together worship of Him. We are eagerly praying. We are eagerly seeking. Father, do your work in the midst of us in the preaching and hearing of your word. Amen? Is that your desire every week? Amen? Moreover, not every elder needs to be the type of teacher who can step into a pulpit, stand in front of a crowd of over a hundred, and enthrall them with wisdom and wit. An elder's ability to teach may look different. An elder could look like this. Someone, when you are struggling to understand a certain passage of the Bible, or, or how to handle a tough situation in life, you know, you can call them up or stop by their house and ask him for help, and you know you'll get a biblical answer. That's an elder. You trust when he opens the Bible, he doesn't say crazy things from it. He provides you with faithful understanding of it because he teaches what accords with sound doctrine as according to Titus 2, 1. In Paul's second letter to Timothy, Paul outlines to Timothy of what a faithful elder is to teach. First, he is to hold onto the pattern of sound teaching that they have heard according to 2 Timothy 1.13. And what he learned, he should be able to teach to others according to 2 Timothy 2, verse 2. He is to be diligent in correctly teaching the word of truth According to 2 Timothy 2.15, he is to avoid empty speech that swerves from the truth. Verses 16 and 18, he must teach and instruct only as God would have him teach, knowing that repentance will lead to a knowledge of truth. Verses 24 and 25. And Paul concludes by commanding Timothy to persist, keep going in preaching the word. Keep going correcting and rebuking and encouraging with great patience, according to 2 Timothy 4.2. As author Colin Hansen says, the picture Paul provides for both Timothy and Titus is the slow and patient and day-to-day -day repetitious work of seeking to grow people in godliness. An elder should not, does not, ought not force, but teach. Because a forced act of godliness is no godliness at all. That's manipulation. A godly act is willfully chosen from a regenerate new covenant heart. When elders teach faithfully, the congregation begins to serve and do good works. The power is in the word. Amen? Second sub-point, elders model or exemplify. It's not enough for pastors to only teach well. 1 Peter 5.3 says, be examples to the flock. That's why 1 Timothy 4.16 exhorts elders to keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching to life and doctrine. Titus 2, 7 and 8 says, Elders should show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned. 2 Timothy 2, 15 says this, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. 
And in 1 Corinthians 9.27, even the Apostle Paul, the foremost disciple of Jesus himself said, But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. It's not enough. A pastor is not qualified merely by his teaching gifts or his knowledge of theology. It's both his sound doctrine and his godly character. Someone who can confidently, humbly, and unashamedly say, as Paul did in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be imitators of me, just as I also am a follower, an imitator of Christ. A shepherd, simply, who doesn't smell like a sheep, is not a shepherd. A shepherd who doesn't smell like the sheep is not a shepherd. A shepherd who sits high and lofty above the rest of us because he knows more scripture or because he thinks he is qualified, is more self-righteous, rather than a sacrificial shepherd. This is why James 3.1 says, Not many of you, not many of you, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness by God. Not only judge stricter for our doctrine, but judge stricter for our lives. 1 Peter 5.8 warns all Christians, but especially pastors, be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour someone. Brothers and sisters, if I can be a bit transparent with you, it's been a tough few weeks for me and fellow pastor brothers in our network recently. Uh, ever since we heard news that Brother Clint Clifton, who played such an important role in this area in church planting, died suddenly in a tragic plane crash. And a few weeks later, we heard that a prominent leader in our convention, a brother who was very close to me and encouraged me in the whole church planting process, recently had to step down from his leadership position because of multiple marital indiscretions, a moral failure. And then I hear of pastor friends in our network, at least two others who had to step down for other reasons, moral failures and spiritual abuse. My goodness, it's like pastors have a target on their backs. Lord, help us. As our church is coming out of our 40 days of fasting and prayer, one of the takeaways that is being etched into my heart through these incidents is to stay vigilant, to be alert, to be hungry for God's Word, to be vigilant, to be alert, to be hungry for God's Word. And my encouragement to all of us is to not stop being eager for God and His Word just because 40 days of fasting is over, all of a sudden, woohoo! back to social media, back to streaming, whatever it is. Some of you so easily didn't think twice about not participating in the 40-day fast with us. What was your reason? Are you content in your spiritual growth? Are you comfortable in your discomforts? Are you so closed off to the idea of growing more in eagerness for the Word, for prayer, for purity, for righteousness? that you're like, nah, I don't need that fasting stuff. I don't need that legalism stuff. Maybe, perhaps, I don't know. I don't know what you're thinking. I'm just asking. Brothers and sisters, I love you as a pastor. Read John Piper's Hunger for God. Read R.C. Sproul's Holiness of God. Read J.C. Ryle's Holiness. Read anything by Charles Spurgeon, especially on prayer, on being filled with the Spirit, on spiritual growth, on evangelism. See if it won't shock you into waking up from complacency and lukewarmness. For those of you who have faithfully finished the 40 days of fasting and prayer, 
or for those of you who faithfully daily read the Word and pray and disciple and evangelize, there are a number of you. I'm so encouraged by you. I'm so thankful for you. I learned so much from you. Thank you for being faithful. Thank you for being real. Thank you for being an example to all of us. You're going to hear a few testimonies of grace at our monthly prayer meeting, 15 minutes following service. I pray that you will be encouraged, comforted, and challenged that we will pray together to grow in these areas as a church. That leads me to my third sub-point. Third sub-point, elders pray. Elders pray. I know this may seem obvious, but you may guess there are pastors who do not pray for their own church members. There are pastors who do not pray for their own church members. I can guess there are more of them than you can even imagine. In a recent article on ninemarks.org titled, A Call for Pastors to Pray for Their People, the first point of the article clearly stated, not praying for your people is a sin. Ouch. The author continued, prayerlessness is a sin. And a pastor who fails to pray for his people is as unbiblical as a pastor who refuses to preach God's word. I wonder how many elders would disqualify themselves because of their prayerlessness for their own people. It's a chilling thought, isn't it, if you really think about it? A pastor that doesn't pray for his own sheep? A parent that doesn't pray for his own children or her own children? A spouse who doesn't pray for his own wife or her own husband? A Christian who doesn't pray for their own fellow church members or the lost? It's a chilling thought if you really think about it. Don't be one. Don't be one. If it's true, as Michael Reeves says in his book, Enjoy Your Prayer Life, prayerlessness is practical atheism. A pastor who doesn't depend on God in prayer is dysfunctional at the least, disqualified at worst. In Acts 6, in the early church, whenever a practical conflict arose in the church, the apostles gathered together to solve the issue. Ultimately, they installed the first deacons so that in Acts 6, 4, the leaders can devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. After all, what elders are commanded to do is a humble imitation of what Christ has already done for us. Jesus prayed for us. Jesus prayed for us. We are to follow His model. Hebrews 12, 12, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Brothers and sisters, Friends and visitors, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the best news that you will ever hear. The good news that while we were yet sinners and enemies of God, Christ came for us. That Christ lived the sinless life that we could not live. Christ died the death that we should have died. He suffered the punishment that we would have suffered in eternal hell, offering us forgiveness and new life when He rose again on the third day as the Bible predicted. And He Himself articulated many times that He would. Christ made a way for you and me. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the only way to God the Father. Salvation and eternal life is offered to us if you would repent and believe and trust in Him. The Bible says, all who will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you are here and you are not a Christian or are not sure that you are, here's the reason. Here's the reason why any of us can follow Jesus how we can live a new and holy life, why we can be free from the fear of death and sin and Satan, 
Why we can commit ourselves to loving one another even as we are from various backgrounds and life stages and sometimes entirely different from the people sitting next to us. Even as the world around us is so divided and so distrusting of one another, we can submit to one another. We can trust one another. Why? As we submit to Christ because He made a way for you and me. If you want to know more about how you can follow Jesus who made that way for you and me, please talk to any of the pastors at the doors at the close of service or anyone smiling next to you. We are eager to talk to you about how you can follow Jesus and commit to Jesus through this church body. Brothers and sisters, it is a humbling and sobering question for me to ask of you this afternoon. Are these qualities that I just talked about what you see in the pastors at NCBC? Elders who are devoted to teaching and preaching God's word, who live our lives as examples among the flock, in our lives, in the way we pursue righteousness, in the way we love our wives and children, in the way we manage our finances, in the ways that we are hospitable, in the way that we love and care for you all by our faithful, humble, persevering commitment to the word and to prayer for you all, in the way we make ourselves available to you, in the way we serve you with our lives. This is why biblical Baptist Reformed ecclesiology is so beautiful because no man, including pastors, are beyond Jesus' authority. We are not to be put on pedestals. We are not untouchables. If ever any pastors at NCBC falls out of line in our doctrine, whenever we stop preaching sound doctrine and the right gospel, whenever in our lives we do not exemplify Christ-like character that is above reproach, you, every single one of you who are members of this church, has the authority collectively given by Christ to fire us. Really. This is not James or Jeremy or Jacob's church at all. It is your church. It is our church. So family, please pray for us. Pray for me, Jeremy, and Jacob. As I often share, even the great Charles Spurgeon, when asked what was the secret of his success, he responded, my people pray for me. Spurgeon also said, no man can do me truer kindness in the world than to pray for me. To have people praying for you, that's the greatest kindness. I hope you understand that and commit to doing so for others. Pray that the elders of this church will be faithful. Pray that we will grow as pastors, preachers, and teachers. Pray that we will be protected. Pray that we will be anointed. Pray that we will be filled up with His Word as we pray for you. Hebrews 13.7 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the words of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. This leads us to our final question, much shorter point. How do pastors lead? I'm going to briefly present three subpoints again. In plurality, with trust. And point number three, aspire. In plurality, with trust, aspire. Subpoint number one, in plurality. The biblical pattern for leadership in Scripture is always plurality. It's not a solo task. It makes sense since Jesus is the only chief shepherd. The rest of us elders are merely under shepherds. Reference Acts 14.23. Philippians 1.1, James 5.14 as a few examples in the scripture that teaches this. Elders being appointed, elders being greeted, elders being called by the sick to pray for members. If you want to learn more on this, please listen to the sermon I preached on 1 Peter 5, 1-5 found on our website. In the book, Rediscovered Church, the authors point out how plurality of elders has a number of benefits. It balances pastoral weakness. No pastors have every gift. Other godly men will have complementary gifts, passions, and insights. So it's helpful to have plurality. It adds pastoral wisdom. No one is omniscient. No one pastor knows everything. 
It diffuses an us-versus-him mentality that can sometimes arise between a church and the pastor. It indigenizes leadership in the congregation so that even if a staff pastor leaves, the congregation still possesses a solid bulwark of leadership. It creates a clear discipleship trajectory for the men of the church. Not every man, of course, will be called by God to serve as an elder, but every man should ask himself, why wouldn't I serve and do what it takes to become the kind of man who serves the body in this way? 1 Timothy 3.1 says, it is good to aspire to be an elder. So do you aspire, brothers, to the qualifications of an elder? It also sets an example of discipleship for women in the church, as I referred to Titus 2, verses 3 and 4 earlier. Subpoint number two with trust. Trust is an important key factor in the elder member relationship. As Hebrews 13, 17 says, this is an important verse, write this down. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they watch over your souls as those who must give an account. To this end, allow them to lead with joy and not with grief, for that would be of no advantage to you. Simply, you see that members are to, listen, this is heavy stuff. Members are to obey and submit to their elders. And elders who watches over the members' souls must give an account to God. Practically, so many churches miss this when they do not practice meaningful biblical church membership. Especially for those churches who have hundreds and thousands of people who come to their church. For those churches who claim to have hundreds in their membership who are barely there from week to week. And there is no biblical church membership that is practiced. So who will these Christians obey and submit to? Which members will the pastors watch over and give an account to? Simply Hebrews 13, 17, without the right type of ecclesiology structure in place, without biblical, meaningful church membership, Hebrews 13, 17 is impossible. The church is not a place people can feel free to come and go as they please or shop around when they get bored or when they want to hide from someone, they just leave. A church is a people covenanted together in love and unity. What a fearful thought that as a pastor, they will stand before Jesus one day on his judgment seat and say to Jesus, I have no idea who they were. I just simply didn't know them. That would be the account that some pastors would give the way that our churches are structured these days. Again, this is one of the reasons why when you move to a new city, you should prioritize finding faithful gospel preaching churches in which you can trust the elders preaching and teaching in their lives in order that you can obey and submit to their leadership as they themselves submit to Christ and His words. Brothers and sisters, let me just tell you, no pastor is perfect as no human being is perfect, but there is a difference between a pastor who is trustworthy in faithfulness and sound doctrine. And you ought to consider his biblical qualifications seriously because your soul depends on it. You have to understand the sick cycle, the cyclical effect of poor, unbiblical leadership. As Pastor Mark Dever says again, false converts hire false teachers who raise up false converts. It's a deadly cycle. False converts hire false teachers who raise up false converts. It's a sick, deadly cycle leading straight to hell. Finally then, third subpoint: aspire. If you believe in the crucial role of elders, if you are convinced that you have a part in this, if you believe in plurality, if you believe in trustworthy elders, that they are necessary, you ought to pray that more faithfully, biblically qualified elders would be raised up from within our very congregation. 
Each of us should own this responsibility. And if you are a man in this congregation, particularly, you ought to aspire to the character of an elder, to godliness, to maturity. May not be next month, may not be next year, may not be even in the next five years. But what is preventing you from aspiring? What's preventing you from examining yourself according to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1? To see where you lack, to determine where you can grow or how you can grow. What's preventing you from asking one of the elders, where am I at? How far off am I? And asking for specific feedback so you can grow more toward maturity. The best place to start is discipling. Meet with a fellow brother. Be hungry for the word. Be brutally transparent. Don't hide around in the periphery. Be zealously committed to aspiring. Sisters, just because the Bible prohibits you from being an elder in the church doesn't mean these qualifications are exempt to you. Aspire, grow, teach, disciple, complement, build up Jesus' church with us together. We all have a part to play in this church body, in this season of societal division and uncertainty, in this season of a spiritually low tide. Let's pray that NCBC will shine brightly. Let's testify of His glorious gospel by loving one another, by being committed to the Word, by proclaiming the gospel to all we meet, and by covenanting together as this local body until Jesus calls you home or takes you to another gospel-preaching church or until He returns. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love You. We thank You. We thank You that You are the chief shepherd. Father, we understand that in this world there is no perfect man, perfect woman, perfect pastor. Yet, Father, by your grace and by what you have accomplished on the cross, we have freedom, we have new life, we have hope, we have strength, we have joy, and we have the Holy Spirit. We have the Word to depend on. You are the author and perfecter of our faith. Father, lead us, sanctify us, grow us for your glory. Grow this church for your glory so that we could be more like you, so that many more will come to know you as Lord and Savior and King. Father, we testify, we confess, it's not us, but it's you in us. Do a work to build up your church and advance your gospel through New Covenant Baptist Church, through faithful men and women who aspire to this task. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.